If you have your Bibles, open them to 1 Timothy. We're going to conclude our series in the path to glory. So let's read the passage, 1 Timothy 3, these couple verses, 14 through 16. So now hear the Word of God. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up into glory. This is the Word of God. We've been talking about this path uh, of glory that uh, Jesus had to take. In fact, if you look at His life, I think you can pretty much codify or summarize His life in this creed. At least Paul was saying you can summarize part of it in this creed. Just look at how it's laid out. He came to the earth. He was incarnate uh, of the Virgin Mary. As we confessed this morning, He became flesh and uh, suffered and died for us. However, He was vindicated by the Spirit. That means that the punishment that He endured was not His. It belonged somewhere else. And of course, we confess that that uh, punishment that He bore was the punishment we deserved for our sin. And so God uh, justified or vindicated Him for His perfect life of obedience and His indestructible life of obedience. He was seen by angels. You see, angels always attended the great acts of redemption. If you go through your Bible, you see angels showing up at all these critical points. And they're often accompanying the great King, the One who is the Anointed, the Mashiach, the Christ of God. And the angels would come and accompany him in his battle. And you see that uh, recapitulated in Jesus' life. And then that good news of Christ's victory is proclaimed to the nations. Not just one group of people, but to all people. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation, all people everywhere now enjoy the message of this Gospel. And they believe. People actually believe this. As incredible as it may seem, we're proclaiming something that is hard to believe. We declare Jesus Christ is God Himself and that He was raised from the dead. And that's a hard pill to swallow. But people embrace it every day throughout the ages, have embraced that. And because of it, their lives are transformed and changed. And I hope that's the story of many of you. They believe it with conviction. And then Jesus is taken up into glory. So He starts in heaven, comes to the earth, does His work, leaves the earth, goes back to heaven. And that's the path of glory. And if you look at this path, that path, what I'm going to talk about today, is the path that the entire Bible... if you. If you wanted to summarize the whole Bible, you could do it with this small little passage in 1 Timothy. The whole plot 
of Scripture is right here. And so let me summarize the way we're going to do it. The path of glory traces, listen, it traces the history of redemption. The history of our redemption. Our reclamation, if you will. Saving the lost. Taking the lost and bringing them back to a place of glory. The story is about lost glory, false glory, and true glory. So that's going to be kind of our outline today. Lost glory, false glory, and true glory. It's the story, I've told you this before, to summarize the plot of the Bible, if someone were to ask you, what is the Bible about? Here's the answer. You could give them, say, you know, have you ever read the Bible? Well, I've read parts of it. You want to know what the plot is to the whole Bible? We can give it to you in three words. Creation, and then what's next? What? Creation, what? Chaos. Good, you get an A+. Uh, creation, chaos, and recreation. That's the story of Scripture. You can take almost any, any one of the stories of Scripture and you can trace it right through those three words. Creation, chaos, and recreation. The story starts creation in the garden. And what happens to Adam and Eve in the garden? They sin, they create... They, They uh, uh, commit cosmic treason, if you want to call it that. Some people have called it that. Against God. And they are cast out of the garden. And where do they go? Where does the story say they go? They're thrown out of the garden. And it says they end up in the east. East of Eden. And what is there preventing them from coming back out of the east and going into the west? What's there to block their way? An angel with a sword of fire blocking their way. You can't come back. If any of you have read Lord of the Rings, where was the land of Mordor? It's in the east. Where is the the great and glorious land that they're all trying to get to? It's in the west. And that's the plot line of your Bible, folks. And if you don't know that, you've got to get that down in your heart. Because if you look at your life, You were born into this world. And there's so much promise for us when we're first born. We're little and we're innocent. And don't give me all the theological stuff about, no, we're not innocent, we have original sin. Yeah, 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 I know that. But but look at the baby. Look at the child. There's a whole world ahead of them. But what happens? As we go through and progress in our life, chaos comes into our life. And you can go through your entire life living in chaos. Yes, I know. I went through a lot of my life living in chaos. Still do sometimes. But at some point, Jesus Christ comes and interrupts our lives. And what does He do? He turns our chaos into recreation. Rebirth. New birth. Takes us from creation through chaos to new creation to redemption. So let's look at those three real quickly. You could look at it differently. You could say uh, garden, wilderness, and the new city of God. That's another way. You could say life, uh, death, new life, new birth. 
You, there's any number of ways you could show this plot line, but for this morning, creation, chaos, and recreation. Creation, the garden. Man was placed in the garden, and he was bestowed on him uniquely among all the creation. Every creature, every uh, living being that had in it the Spirit of God, that's anything that breathes air, any creature... Anything that God made, man was bestowed on him something that no other creature had. It was called the image of God. Let us make man, what does it say? In our what? In our image. The image of God. Let us make him in our image. In other words, man, you and I, from the time we're born, we are created. Richard Pratt, he wrote a whole book created for dignity. You were made specifically to carry that image around with you. And we have got the wrong notion that when we sinned in, uh, in, our, in, in eternity past, whenever we sinned, Adam and Eve, our parents, you know, when they sinned, that we fell and we did indeed fall. Yes, you all agree? Everybody fell. And we somehow believe that the image of God disappeared. But it didn't. The image of God is still in you. It's in every human being. From the least to the last to the lost, as we say in our church, everybody carries in them the image of God. Now I look around sometimes and I see people and I go, there's no way the image of God is in that person. And then, of course, you know, I'm walking along minding my own business and there's a, a window that shows my reflection and I go, my goodness. Does the image of God even exist in him? <laughs> I'm looking at me and I go, how does the image of God exist in me? But it does. I don't know how and I don't understand all of that, but the image of God uniquely exists in everyone. Psalm 8 says He has crowned us as human beings with glory. Do you know that there's not one other creature in all of creation that shares God's glory except man? We carry around in us His glory. You say, well, that only applies to uh, Christians. No, it doesn't. If that were true, God would not have given us the commandment, thou shalt not kill. Everyone carries that dignity. Everyone has that image. And that's the storyline of the Bible. Everybody is lost. The image has been wounded, has been destroyed. has been. It's still there, but it's, it's a a facsimile of itself. It's a distortion, a caricature, if you will, of itself. It needs to be restored, reborn, recreated. It's dead, but it's still there. The corpse is there. It needs life. It needs the Spirit breathed back into it. That's the story of creation. Glory is bestowed. We're made in the image of God. We're crowned with glory. And we, using our free will and our choice, and if you want to debate about free will or not, we can have the debate after church. But man has and had free will. Yes, all you Calvinists? They had free will. But their will was not free. They couldn't do. God had limited their will. 
They had free will, but he limited their will and he said, you shall not eat from this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I'm putting a restriction, a limit to your will. Will you trust me? Will you believe me and just stay away from that tree? And they said, no, we think that we know better than you, which is the story of everybody's life, yes. We know better than you, and so we go our own way. And that's why we can never use the excuse, folks, of saying, well, you know, if, if I had been in the garden, I wouldn't have done what Adam and Eve did. Really? What about this morning? How good were you doing this morning? How a good five minutes ago? And we can't use that excuse. We know there's something wrong with us. We're, uh, as Herman Melville said in Moby Dick, we're cracked about the head, whether we're Presbyterians or pagans. And we all need a remedy. We all need to be fixed because we're broken, we're cracked about the head. And so man began his search. Here's the, here's the track, folks. Creation, he loses the glory that he had, so he begins the journey in the wilderness looking for what? What do you think he's out there looking for to try to restore to himself? Glory! He lost it. How many of you have been in the journey? Then you all should be speaking up because you've heard this like a hundred times, right? Okay, you journey folks, you all get a D for today. We lost our glory. And so the wilderness, we start searching. That's what wilderness is. That's the very definition of wilderness is that we are seeking our glory in a place that's dry and empty and void and cannot satisfy. You can't even get a drop of water on your lips. But we will not relent. We're going to squeeze the glory out of those dry rocks. We're going to get it out of the sand and the dirt. We're going to go get it no matter what. And we're going to shake our fist at God all the way. But we're going to get glory and we'll do it in the wilderness. And that's the story. If you look at your Bible, that's the story. Every story. Seeking glory. So they go from creation, the garden, cast into the east. Think literarily and poetically now. Think outside. They're cast into the east. The wilderness and wilderness, they're looking for their glory. They keep peeking back and they see over there that garden, really cool. But I mean, there's this terrifying angel there with a sword and they know they can't get back that way. So fine. We'll just, we understand. That's great. We'd really like to get back there. But we can't. So we'll seek our glory elsewhere. We seek it in the wilderness. It's false glory. We had glory, now it's false glory. We lost our glory, we're looking for false glory. And we teach and are taught, parents listen to me, we teach our children every day that the way to find glory is through what? Yeah, performance. Where are the journey people this morning? Through your performance. Do what I tell you. Act right, do right, be right. Again, I could, I could quote Richard Pratt. Richard used to tell us, here, trick question, just so you know. How, do, how many of you like this statement? Think right, 
do right, be right. How many of you like that statement? Okay. Anybody else? Think right, do right, be right. Good luck with that. Now that'll get you part of the way down the road. But it won't get you all the way. You cannot think your way into God's good graces. You cannot perform your way into God's good graces. You cannot do it. You have to be right. Then you will think right. Then you will do right. You with me? Being has to come before doing in the Christian world. There's no such thing as what you do is who you are. Every time I hear that on television, which is, by the way, what you hear most of the time, what you do is who you are. And folks, if that's your worldview, you are setting yourself up for a disaster because someday what you do is going to go away. Either because you get old and have to retire, or you get cancer and you can't do it anymore, or you get in a car wreck and you get killed, or injured, or any number of things. You get addicted to drugs, you get addicted to alcohol, you name it. Someday, what you do, if you tie your identity to what you do, that can be taken away from you in a split second. But who you are, the real you, the DNA down inside, the one that God puts inside, what Gary prayed so beautifully this morning, don't trust money. Money can be taken away from you. Trust this instead of your money. I'll never leave you or forsake you. Who you are cannot be robbed. Yes? Amen? Cannot be taken from you. Who you are cannot be robbed from you. What you do can be taken. So if who you are, if you find that in the wilderness, then you're ready to make the turn Back to paradise. Back the way we lost. We're taught early, folks, that vindication or justification comes by our performance. And let me say this. Nothing wrong with that in every single realm. If you want to go for straight A's in college or high school, good. If you want to achieve uh, some great success in your career and climb the corporate ladder, nothing wrong with that. Everything's fine. Merit is important. You know, it's how you get a raise. And we want everybody to get raises so that you can give lots of money to the church. <laughs> nothing wrong with that. Merit and effort and striving ahead is good until it becomes everything. Or until it becomes the way you deal with your relationship with God Almighty. And the day that happens, folks, is the day you die. And the reason it's so hard for us to talk about is because every one of us has been there. In fact, if you're like me, and I know this stuff inside out, I, can, I, can, I could talk about it and never look at another note for, from now on. I know it that well. 
And when I leave this building and I get in the car with Marty V and on the way home, the first thing I ask her, what do I ask you, honey? How was my sermon? Is that pathetic? (laughs) Because I get my vindication from this. Now, I'm sorry, I have to admit it. That's the price you have to pay to be a pastor. It's awful. Uh, Luke, give it up now before it hurts too much. That's how we get our vindication. We find things to vindicate us, to make us worthy. And we want so desperately to go to God and say, will you look at this? Will you just take a moment and look? And he looks and he says, yeah, I see that. It's pretty good. Not too bad. You know, I have... It's like a, like your parent looking at a kid four years old, they're drawing. You know, what are you going to say to your child? Oh, that's horrible? No, of course not. You say it's very nice. And so you take the scribble drawing, the crayon, and what do you do with it? Where do you take it and put it in your house? You put it on the refrigerator. And you proudly display this thing that's horrific on your refrigerator. And you dare any other human being to come in and say one thing about it. You dare them. And what's the basis of that? It's because you have bestowed upon that crayon drawing worth. You've said it's worth something. And when God looks at your works and your efforts, He knows that they're scribbles. But above that, above His refrigerator, listen, above His refrigerator is the Mona Lisa, is the Sistine Chapel, is the sculpture of David. Whatever great piece of art you can imagine, the greatest of all Great creation is looming there above and it is His Son's work that He is bestowing on our crayon drawing and saying, that's the basis. This is the basis for this one down here. This crayon drawing, this beautiful sculpture here that He did is why I'm going to dare anybody to question your worth and your dignity. You see, in the wilderness is where we find God. And unfortunately, folks, in the wilderness, if you, we throw two switches in the wilderness. If you can imagine, we either throw the switch of self-righteousness and self-justification or, and for many of you, you know what I'm talking about, we throw this other switch, the other switches of uh, self-gratification and sin. And so in the world, you find people that are, that are, you know, they go to church their whole lives. They're very good people. They're just wonderful. They, you know, you can count the number of times they sin on one hand. And they're very proud of that. And they're doing really great. I mean, their obedience is amazing. And Jesus had this to say to those people whose obedience was perfect, really good, better than most of us. To some, confident in their own righteousness who looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and he prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, 
robbers and evildoers and adulterers. Thank God I'm not like them. Or even like this tax collector, this guy in the back. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I have. But the tax collector stood at a distance, the back of the room, and he would not even look. He wouldn't even look up to heaven. He's so filled with shame. And he beat his chest and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus said this, I tell you the truth. Amen, amen, verily, verily. In other words, this is in stone. This guy, the sinner, the tax collector, went away vindicated, justified. And the Pharisee did not. Did not. So none of us can be confident in our self-righteousness. If you find that in the wilderness, folks, that is a recipe for death. Self-vindication, self-justification will take you nowhere but to hell. And then the obvious is self-gratification through sin. That's not the way. That's the way of the prodigal who goes to the father and in his arrogance he says, give me my inheritance right now so I can go and do whatever I want with it. And the father graciously gives it to him and off he goes. And he squanders his inheritance and throws it all away. And the reality, as, as Tim Keller has said, as Edmund Clowney said before him, as scholars have said for ages, both of the sons in the prodigal son story, the elder brother and the prodigal son, were both separated from God. And when you hear the dialogue of these two, when the son, the prodigal, comes back, how does he want to reintegrate himself and reintroduce himself to the father? What does he say to the father? I'll work for you. Which sadly, folks, is most of us. We come back, we go to the far country, we sin like the devil. And then we come back to God and we cry and we ask Jesus into our heart, oh please come save me Lord Jesus, and He saves us. And then we say, oh I'm so happy I'm saved, thank you Jesus, now I'm going to work for you. I'm going to work, 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 work. And that's where we live folks, we live in that. And we think that God is accepting us because of our works. When all the time, he's embracing us with divine love. And the elder brother, the one that stayed at home, he wants his relationship with God to be the same. He wants to base his relationship on his work, on his effort. And both of them leave us in the wilderness. Both the, arrow, both the prodigal and the elder brother are separated from God. As Keller and Clowney and I don't know how many others have said. How do you get back to the garden? How do you get back to the promised land? What is the way back? How do you go from creation to chaos to recreation? And as Dr. Sproul says, R.C., he says, there's good news and bad news. But the good news isn't good news until you take a look at the bad news. 
The good news is this. Here it is. This is the good news. You are indeed saved by your works. You better be righteous. You better fulfill all my commandments. You better do every single thing I've told you without fail. And if you do that, you'll live. You'll live. Good news, right? How does that sound to you? The bad news is, your works, our efforts, all that we pour in thinking that it will justify us before God, all those things are what Isaiah the prophet said were filthy rags. Listen to what he said. You, uh, uh, you, you meet Him who rejoices in doing righteousness, who remembers you in your ways. Behold, you are angry, for we sinned. We continued in them long ago. And how? You can almost hear the, the pathos in His voice. How? shall we be saved. For we have become like one unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like filthy garments. All of us, listen to this, and feel it. All of us wither like a leaf in our iniquities. And like the wind takes us away takes us away. The good news is this. Now, apart from the righteousness of God, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets, here's the whole plot line of the Bible, creation, chaos, recreation, listen, Now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify this righteousness given through faith in Jesus to all who believe. There is no difference. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and all are freely justified, vindicated by His grace through the redemption that comes through Jesus Christ. Here it is. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of His blood to be received by faith. He who knew no sin was made to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. God says to you when you come back to the garden and you're there in your brokenness, like the prodigal son, He comes back and He says, I will like to be like just one of your servants. I'll just come back and I want to work for you. I don't want to be a son again. I just want to work for you. And the Father doesn't even deign to answer. He says this, I will fulfill for you the requirements. Here we go. I'll do it for you. Here's the way back. I will clothe you with my robe of righteousness. I will give you my ring, my life, my authority, everything that I have. I'll give you my ring. 
and I will kill the sacrifice to provide you the sacrificial meal so that you can eat and be welcome back at my table. I'll kill it myself. The Romans didn't put Jesus on the cross and neither did the Jews. You and I put Him on the cross and the Father sent Him there so that we could be free and pass back through that dangerous angelic guard into the garden, into the recreation. Back to His table. That's why we have communion, folks. That's why we come to the table. He he killed the fatted calf for us. His own Son. So that we could be welcome at His table. And the requirement, you receive it. You either take it my way, or you don't get it at all. It's either grace plus nothing, or what? Nothing. It's grace plus nothing, or nothing. And so every day of your journey, folks, as you walk through this mortal veil, the veil of tears, as people have said, you walk through this mortal veil of tears every day, you're going to be fighting that interior battle, that tension of standing before God, either on your own righteousness or on Christ. And I'll tell you, probably ten times a day, maybe more, if you're like me, it takes more than that, you're going to have to remind yourself, I'm coming back because the sacrifice has been slain for me. The atonement of shedding of blood has been made for me. I'm welcome at this table because of who died for me. That's why we have bread and wine. Who died for me? And every day, we come back to Him on that. Will you trust me? That's what He's asking you folks. That's what He's asking us. Will you trust me? And I hope you will. I hope we all will. Let's pray. Father, uh, sometimes it's so hard. We want to stand before You on our own two feet, but our legs are crippled. We can't even lift ourselves off the bed because of the paralysis that is there. And You see it, and You stretch out Your holy hand, and You take the paralysis into Your heart so that the healing virtue can flow into us. And I pray, Father, Please help us. Help us to stand before You every day on the merit of Christ alone plus nothing. And as our own pride and determination to do it our way pushes in and we want to stand before You some other way, that You will always remind us of His grace. Grace that is sufficient. Help us. Save us. Have mercy on us, O God, according to Your grace. Amen.